These cases have been taken from the files of the Army Intelligence Corps, the Office of Special Investigation, U.S. Air Force, and the Office of Naval Intelligence. Today, we're going to show you three cases of attempted espionage by agents of the Sino-Soviet intelligence system. Now, for security reasons, certain names and locations have been altered. But essentially, these things happen. They're typical case histories. Now, as these cases unfold, You'll recognize the way a Sino or Soviet agent operates, both in finding someone vulnerable to subversion, as well as in their technique of ensnaring him, then applying pressure to get him to play ball. Now, we show you these cases so you'll be on your guard. Today, all over the world, there are thousands of Sino-Soviet intelligence agents with money to burn, looking for unsuspecting targets for exploitation among members of our forces. There may be someone right now taking your measure probing for a vulnerable area, whether it be loneliness, indebtedness, desire for sex, easy money, or the sporting life. In fact, everyone in uniform could be a target of opportunity for exploitation if he is vulnerable. Profit from these cases. Learn how to recognize the approach of an enemy agent, and if ever approached, what to do. Remember, these things happen. They may never happen to you, then again, they may. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Devil in the Details podcast the podcast where I investigate and expose ongoing, unlawful, non-consensual human experimentation on innocent men and women in the U.S. and possibly abroad. I am one of those people victimized by this atrocity, and now I am working hard to restore justice by sharing evidence and information in hopes of prompting a proper investigation. Join me in my fight and help raise awareness by tuning in and sharing this podcast with your family and friends. to part three in my series on informants. In this episode, we will be looking at the East German secret police, 
also known as the Stasi. On my petition at change.org, uh, the address is change.org slash will to live. I've written a series of updates or articles. One of those is titled how an unlawful secret experiment can happen in plain sight and you not know it. And I want to read to you what I wrote about the Stasi and to just kind of give you a brief introduction into the videos that you'll be looking at today. After World War II, the citizens of East Germany were kept under constant surveillance by their government's secret police, known as the Stasi. The Stasi regularly used informants. Take seven. After World War II, the citizens of East Germany were kept under constant surveillance by their government's secret police, known as the Stasi. The Stasi regularly used informants. At one time, they were estimated to have more than 170,000 informal collaborators. The Stasi's informal informants or collaborators were everyday citizens incentivized to spy on their neighbors, friends, family, and co-workers for the same purpose as the Nazis and the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission. Report anyone that spoke or worked against their respective government's unethical laws and practices. Some citizens willingly became informants out of a sense of patriotism. Others were paid. Others had to be coerced and blackmailed. Reported citizens were often interrogated, imprisoned, without trial, or they themselves turned into informants. Others suffered a worse fate by being targeted by the secret police with mental decomposition, a series of covert psychological tactics used to lower the morale of dissidents without any need to arrest or tor torture the target. It's basically gaslighting on bath salts. The Stasi broke into citizens' homes, rearranged furniture, turned pictures upside down or took them out of their frames, arranged for their work to go poorly, spread rumors about a target among his or her friends and colleagues, stories of alcoholism, parental neglect, or the like, arranged for a target to get deliberately incorrect medical treatment, and much more. Small disturbances noticeable only to the target so that when, if they told anyone or reported it, they would seem crazy. The goal was to destroy the self-confidence of the target. For example, by damaging their reputation, by organizing failures in their work, and by destroying their personal relationships. The Stasi didn't try to arrest every dissident. It, it preferred to paralyze them and it could do so because it had access to so much personal, personal information and to so many institutions. Now, this next series of videos will go into more detail about the East German secret police, and it will also show some interviews with uh, people who were actually victims uh, of this illegal uh, surveillance system. Now, the East German secret police is who the 
U.S. intelligence agencies, that's who they bottle themselves after. That's who they aspire to be. Them and the Nazis. You know, they use a lot of their tactics. Um, they, they use those to spy on citizens, to spy on other countries. You know, but anyway, let's get to it. I hope that you'll enjoy these videos. I'm thinking about doing a fourth part to this. Um, I don't know. But either way, stay tuned to the next episode. Please share this with your family and friends. Share this episode. Share the podcast. Um, Let me know your feedback if you're enjoying these. And that's it. I'll see you soon. In the almost 40 years of its existence, the methods of the Stasi got more psychologically refined. A very infamous technique was used more and more in the 1970s and was called Zersetzung, which literally means chemical decomposition. In this case, however, it can be translated as subversion. It meant that opposition groups or individual people would be influenced in such a way that by means of psychological manipulation, the oppositional activities would be reduced or completely stopped. There was a number of ways how the Stasi achieved this. To mention a few, destroying someone's reputation by spreading what we nowadays call fake news or by simply exposing someone's secrets. Making it look like a person is a Stasi informer by, for example, spreading rumors about MFS activities or by sending fake meeting invitations so that he or she would not be trusted anymore and be expelled from the group. Influencing someone's professional life by arranging failures that affected a person's career. All these manipulations could be combined with psychological terror by acts of violence and threats. More than 111 kilometers, 68 miles of Stasi files still exist. A part of the files had been shredded and destroyed in 1989 and 1990. Up to today, still 16,000 bags containing hand-torn paper documents are still being reconstructed. After the German reunification, it was discussed whether the files should be made open to the public. On one hand, the people should have the right to know if they had a file. On the other hand, there was a fear of retaliation and that the people would start go hunting former Stasi officials. At the end of 1991, it was decided to give access to the files whereby all names mentioned in the files will be blackened. Seven and a half million requests have been made since then and millions of people have already taken a look in their Stasi file. Vera Wallenberger joined the East German peace movement in 1981, encouraged by her husband Knut. My personal motivation for opposing state policies was the decision in the early 80s to station nuclear missiles in the GDR and to introduce military instruction in schools. Vera and her family were constantly harassed by the Stasi, who burgled her house and made sure she lost her teaching job. Her husband stood by her throughout. 
1988, Vera was arrested on her way to this demonstration. Her crime? Carrying a banner which bore Rosa Luxemburg's words, freedom is how free your opponent is. She was interrogated and imprisoned. In 1991, after the collapse of the GDR, Vera got access to her Stasi file, in which she learned that the main informer against her had been her own husband. I can't really say how I felt. It was such an extreme situation, rather as if one had died for a moment and then returned to life. The surprising thing was, the reports were written as if about a stranger, not about a wife. To him, I was an enemy of the state, and he had done everything to fight me, the enemy. At the height of the Cold War, East Germany's infamous Stasi secret police kept meticulous records about those it spied on, imprisoned and tortured. When the Berlin Wall came down and Germany was reunited, much of that archive survived. Millions of documents that catalogue years of repression. Many former citizens are still haunted by the dark times revealed in those files, when family and friends became informers, when freedom was only a dream. But now time is running out for those searching for answers and justice. In a quiet corner of East Berlin, this archive holds the key to millions of secrets. Once headquarters to East Germany's feared secret police, it was here that the Stasi stored their records, the intimate details of millions of people. But now this information is being used for good. This month marks the 50th anniversary of the building of the Berlin Wall. It stood 28 years, a potent symbol of communist repression. Its fall in 1989 marked the end of the Cold War. But in Berlin today, the Cold War is still being fought between the Stasi and their victims. The German establishment is riddled with former Stasi, from police chiefs to judges, while those they oppressed are largely ignored. But the victim's cause has just been boosted by the appointment of Roland Jahn, a charismatic former dissident, to head the Stasi archive. Thirty years ago, Roland Jahn agitated for change in East Germany, known as the GDR. Ja, ich habe nicht gewartet darauf, dass man mir äh, die Freiheiten gibt, sondern ich habe mir die Freiheit genommen. Ich habe mir die Meinungsfreiheit genommen, ich habe mir die Informationsfreiheit genommen, ich habe mir die Versammlungsfreiheit genommen und deswegen wurde ich ins Gefängnis gesperrt. Erich Honecker, East Germany's last dictator, ruled the country with an iron fist. Personally overseeing the building of the Berlin Wall. The Stasi, once Europe's largest secret police force, had 102,000 officers and a network of half a million informers. 
one in every 30 East German citizens was complicit in a system that destroyed the lives of those who did not fit in. Also, ähm, ich war 17 Jahre alt, äh, 1985. Da habe ich mich äh, während eines Urlaubs in Budapest, äh, in Ungarn, in einen äh, Politiker aus der Bundesrepublik verliebt. Und die Staatssicherheit äh, hat das mitbekommen, weil er mich ziemlich häufig in Ostberlin besuchte. Sie wollten mich dann zwingen, als Informant für sie zu arbeiten. Und ich habe gesagt, das mache ich nicht. Und mit dem Moment äh, kam ich ins Blickfeld der Staatssicherheit. Herde Schonhurst was a glamorous TV presenter known to millions in East Germany. Herde did not agree with the communist dictatorship and when she applied to leave East Germany, the Stasi moved in. Sie haben sich dann zwei konspirative Zimmer eingerichtet, gerade rüber von unserem Haus und rechts von unserem Haus und uns rund um die Uhr bewacht. Nach einer Woche dann, es war montags früh, früh kurz vor 7 Uhr, ich lag noch im Bett, und da geht die Schlafzimmertür auf und ich denke, meine Kinder kommen noch mal herein. Und stattdessen stehen zwölf Stasi-Männer und eine Frau vor meinem Bett. Kommen Sie mit zur Klärung eines Sachverhalts. Und dass diese Klärung nun drei Jahre dauern würde, wusste ich zu diesem Zeitpunkt noch nicht. The Stasi developed new techniques in psychological torture. Nun könnte ich ja sagen, ich war wirklich ein Widerstandskämpfer, ja, wie die Akte es sagt. Aber ich hatte große, große Angst vor ihnen. Denn sie haben gedroht, meine Eltern zu verhaften. Sie haben gedroht, meiner Schwester das Kind wegzunehmen. Meine Nichte war zwei Jahre alt und das Kind wird in ein Heim gesteckt und dann von Funktionären adoptiert. Like thousands of others. Mario Rolig was held at the top secret interrogation center known as Hunchenhausen. They had designed Hunchenhausen prison as a psychological torture. And the main method was isolation. It was completely silent in this prison. And the only noise you heard frequently was the banging of the cell doors and the knocking of the bolts. And uh, the guards did this uh, especially loud because they wanted to demonstrate even if the prisoner was successful to leave the prison in his thought. Yeah? The banging of the cell doors and the knocking of the bolts reminded him that he was imprisoned and that he couldn't escape. The prisoners had to sleep on their backs, their hands over the blanket and this was checked during the night by the guards. And when a prisoner changed this position during sleeping, he was waked up by banging with the bolts, the bolts, and the hatch was open and the guards shouted inside, keep on the sleeping room. After months of interrogation, detainees were sent to a network of remote prisons like Honeck, an East German gulag where political prisoners were forced to work. Beim Eingang in, in dem Eingangsbereich, also der Aufnahmebereich, äh, da waren wir so zwei oder drei Tage und da habe ich einmal Mittagessen bringen müssen in so eine Arrestzelle. Das nannte sich Tigerkäfig und da drin war eine Frau. Die war 
zum Tier geworden. Sie war so aggressiv, dass die Wachfrauen äh, nicht äh, mehr da reingegangen sind. Die haben praktisch uns Neuankömmlinge diesen Anblick gegeben, damit wir gleich lernen, wie es da lang geht in dem Hause. 24 Frauen auf einen Raum, drei Stock Metallbetten, eine Toilette für alle und drei Waschgelegenheiten an so einem Schweinetrog. Und unter dem Motto, uns sind zehn Mörder lieber als ein politischer Gefangener. It was particularly hard for mothers. Edith Fiedler's son was sent to a school for mentally handicapped children, although he had no such disability. Diese beiden Bilder, die wurden mir von zu Hause geschickt, von meinem Sohn während meiner Haftzeit in Hoheneck. Und dann durfte ich mir eins aussuchen und eins ständig bei mir tragen. But Edith's son was luckier than most. Margot Honecker, the dictator's wife and minister for education, introduced a policy of forced adoption of the children of jailed dissidents. No one knows how many children were taken because no records were kept. Das Schlimme, was die Stasi gemacht hat, ist ja, dass sie Menschen zersetzt hat. Das war ein offizieller Begriff der Stasi, äh, damit man die Oppositionellen äh, ja, in ihrer Persönlichkeit zerstört. If prisoners were deemed to be of no further use to the state or could not be broken by the Stasi, they were sold to West Germany. It was a lucrative practice which helped keep the GDR afloat. I was sentenced to one year of imprisonment and after 10 months of imprisonment West Germany paid for my release or East Germany sold me. The average price per prisoner was 96.000 Deutsche Mark. In values today it means 68.000 euros. No one expected the Berlin Wall to fall. When it did, the Stasi began destroying the evidence of the crimes they had committed. But their headquarters was stormed, and most of the files saved. Today, they are a monument to the most insidious secret police force of modern times. 111 kilometers of files including photographs, films, and tape recordings. Open to the public in 1991, people flocked to see their file. And interest hasn't fallen. In the last six months, there were 42,000 requests. Das ist eine wichtige Aufgabe, wo ich aufbauen kann auf meiner eigenen Erfahrung mit der Stasi. Ich weiß, wie die Stasi funktioniert hat und deswegen sind das gute Voraussetzungen, jetzt äh, mit aufzuklären, äh, den Menschen die Informationen zu geben über die Stasi. In the coming weeks, Roland Jahn's mandate to screen public officials for Stasi involvement will be extended to 2019 after which time Stasi spies will escape scrutiny. But with the sheer magnitude of their task, for Jan and his team, it may prove to be a race against time. Many of Honecker's henchmen are still in positions of power. According to research conducted at Berlin's Free University, 
17,000 former Stasi are government employees in Berlin and the East German states. Even now, 10% of police in the state of Brandenburg are former Stasi. I think this is a very incredible case, but um, you have to think about the situation when they, when they were taken over in, into their jobs. And this was police in Brandenburg was the GDR police. And the GDR police was highly um, co controlled by the Stasi and also Stasi members who were inside the police working, inofficially and officially. There are even judges who spied for the Stasi, embedded in the German legal system. For example, one judge sentenced a couple who tried to leave the country, and he sentenced them to prison. And he was taken over after 89, and he's still judge in Brandenburg. The Stasi archive continues to yield chilling facts about high-ranking officials. But for some, the files contain more personal revelations. Aber schrecklich ist, wenn ich eben heute gelesen habe, 1997 gelesen habe, dass zum Beispiel mein bester Freund der mieseste der vier Informanten über mich war, weil er hat Geld für die Berichte bekommen. Always the activist, Vera Langsfeld became an MP for the CDU. With a high profile in the newly unified Germany, she received some startling news. I was told by uh, friends. Um that my husband was a spy. So the next day I went uh, to the office uh, for the Stasi files. His uh, file uh, was almost completely destroyed, so what was left was rather trivial. I can only guess, and my guess is that he had report only on me, not on other people, because um, I was a very important person for the Stasi. Many crimes were committed against political prisoners. The basement section of Hunchenhausen, known as the U-boat, is where torture was conducted. This included Chinese water torture. The head of the prisoner was fixed between two wooden poles while water dripped on the forehead from the bucket above. Next door is the water cell, a small chamber insulated in rubber and filled with about six inches of water. Prisoners were left here for days on end in the depths of winter. The last commandant of Hunchenhausen prison, Siegfried Ratacik, worked as a guard here. He still lives just a few blocks from the prison. Guten Tag, wir sind mit Al Jazeera Fernsehen und wir wollten wissen, ob, ähm, ob wir waren jetzt gerade in Hohenschönhausen in der Gedenkstätte. Im Kuhl Kabinett. Ja. Ähm, ja, genau. Und deshalb, wir wollten wissen, wir wollten wissen, was Ihre Meinung jetzt, was daraus geworden ist, was Ihre Meinung darüber ist. Da sind so viele Fernsehanstalten da, ich gebe keine Interviews mehr Siegfried Rodicic cannot be held to account for his crimes. Before unification, and for the sake of expediency, West Germany took the controversial decision to sanction all such human rights violations so long as they were legal at the time of the East German dictatorship. The fact that these people are still at liberty only adds to the trauma of survivors. Mario Rolick was working at Cardovay, Berlin's richest department store at the cigar counter, when his past came back to haunt him.
habe ich den Stasi-Offizier wiedererkannt, der mich zwölf Jahre vorher im Gefängnis verhört hat. Und als er vor mir stand, das war ein bisschen, als wenn man dem Teufel wieder begegnet. Und ich habe zu ihm gesagt, entschuldigen Sie, wir kennen uns, Stasi-Gefängnis Hohenschönhausen. Er sagte dann, was wollen Sie jetzt von mir? Und ich habe gesagt, ja, eine Entschuldigung, nur eine Entschuldigung. Und äh, dann sagte er, äh, wofür? Sie sind doch ein Verbrecher. Und Reue ist was für kleine Kinder. Und dann drehte er sich um und ging. Und für mich war mein schönes Leben zu Ende. Ich brach zusammen und musste mit dem Notarzt in die geschlossene Psychiatrie gebracht werden. Mario, like many others, does not qualify for a Stasi victim's pension. While former Stasi officers, like Siegfried Radicic, enjoy some of the highest occupational pensions in Germany. Yes, it is um, one of the facts which make me really, really angry because they had huge wages uh, and uh, yes, now they have very huge pensions. <laughs> Despite having destroyed the lives of countless children, Margot Honecker continues to receive a substantial pension for her time as Minister of Education. After the collapse in 1990, she went to, to uh, Santiago and uh, nowadays she is getting a very high pension. It doesn't have to do anything with justice what uh, happens here. The victims has to fight for every euro and the former elites are treated uh, much better. Since reunification in 1990, almost no one has been jailed for state crimes committed in the GDR, not even Eric Honecker. As of 2001, former Stasi have enjoyed a blanket immunity. Since uh, the former Stasi generals are not prosecuted anymore, they are starting to rewrite the former GDR history and their own history. They are writing books, they are doing talk shows, going to schools, and that's dangerous, of course. To counter this shameless propaganda, former prisoners guide schoolchildren and tourists around Honschenhausen. The prison is now a memorial to those who suffered there. It is necessary because there are some people who wanted to play down the history of the Stasi in East Germany. And so it is very necessary to remember um, the people on the history. It's very important for the pupils to feel this memorial, to feel the history, not only to read about this situation. But some in Germany would like to see the memorial closed. Hans Bauer was the deputy state prosecutor for East Germany. He is the spokesman for the GRH, the Society for Legal and Humanitarian Support, a body which represents former Stasi. Its offices are in the publishing house of the old GDR state newspaper, Musa Deutschland. His group published books to show the positive side of the GDR dismissing accusations of torture. Absolute Lüge. Absolute Lüge. Uh, 
Es gab klare Regelungen, Ordnungen, nicht zuletzt eine Aufsicht der Staatsanwaltschaft über die Untersuchungshaftanstalten, alles in der Strafprozessordnung der DDR geregelt. The GRH claim that former Stasi are victims of Western propaganda, excluded from political posts. But it hasn't barred high-flying politicians like Gregor Gysi. Erstmals in der Geschichte der Bundesrepublik Deutschland. His party, the left, made a dramatic breakthrough in the last general election, scoring 12% of the national vote and sharing power in Berlin. Seen here on YouTube, Margot Honecker gloated over the party's success. 12%, the left's rising star, Bodo Ramelow, sparked outrage when he denied that East Germany was an unjust state. He sees no reason to bar Stasi spies from politics. In meiner Fraktion ist ein IM, der sich selbst geoutet hat, der seit 21 Jahren mit seiner IM-Akte öffentlich umgeht. Und ich habe eine zweite Kollegin, die war für die Kriminalpolizei. Also sie hat sich der Öffentlichkeit mit ihrer Akte gestellt und ist jetzt zweimal hintereinander direkt gewählt worden vom Volk. Das heißt, dem darf man nicht jede Woche wieder vorhalten, dass er Schuld auf sich geladen hat. If you look at the program the left wing party has, then you can see that they want to start with the socialist system again. Most of the people are against any dictatorship, any socialist, communist regime and against the left-wing party, of course, because, I mean, that is the former state party. We have even a former guard of Hohenschönhausen who is now a member of the Bundestag. And he served as a guard in Hohenschönhausen when I was a prisoner there. And... Um, I'm only lucky that I'm not a member of the Parliament of the Bundestag any longer because uh, I couldn't cope <laughs> with the idea that a former Hohenschönhausen guard is sitting next to me in the Bundestag plenum. <laughs> the German government has asked Roland John to conduct an urgent review into the extent of Stasi infiltration of previous parliaments. Also die Stasi hat ja versucht in den letzten Tagen ihrer Existenz Akten zu vernichten, aber sie hat es nicht ganz geschafft. Sie hat sie vorvernichtet, sie hat sie zerrissen, mit der Hand zerrissen zum Beispiel. Many believe it was the most sensitive files which the Stasi began destroying. Files relevant to people who are still in positions of power. But Rolignan's team have developed pioneering software to put them back together. And now these files are about to reveal their secrets. Uh, inwieweit sie präsent sind, das muss man sehen. Aber was waren alles Akten, die bis zuletzt genutzt worden sind? And history is repeating itself. In the wake of the Arab Spring, secret police are destroying the evidence of their crimes. Earlier this year, Egyptian protesters occupied the country's heavily guarded spying agency to stop the destruction of files. Acres of documents, some shredded, are now under the protection of the army, who have promised to preserve them. 
klar, die Bilder, die man sieht aus dem arabischen Raum, das ist ein Déjà-vu, weil man sieht, dass Menschen aufbegehren gegen die Diktatur und ein selbstbestimmtes Leben führen wollen. Das macht optimistisch, dass Diktaturen nicht ewig existieren. One block south of the Brandenburg Gate is Berlin's Holocaust Memorial, only completed in 2004, six decades after the war had ended. 20 years after the fall of the Third Reich, it was a familiar picture in West Germany. All the former Nazi people sitting in um, key positions. And the Germans hadn't learned uh, about the mistakes they made after the Third Reich. Some believe the law which bans people from denying the Holocaust should be widened to include denial of the crimes of the East German dictatorship. Und zwar, dass es unter Strafe steht, die Leugnung der kommunistischen Verbrechen insgesamt. Ja, also nicht nur der Verbrechen in der DDR. Ähm, sondern der kommunistischen Verbrechen insgesamt wäre der größte Traum für mich, wenn es so ein äh, Gesetz gibt für die Bestrafung dieser Leugnung. Ähm, und nicht nur für mich, sondern für alle ehemals Verfolgten und deren Familien. The German government have promised to finance the archive for one more term, which will expire in 2019. Roland Jahn's mandate to vet public officials and uncover the truth about the Stasi may be the country's last chance to deal with its communist legacy. From the heart of East Berlin, a group of middle-aged men ran the Cold War for the East. Their strategy included the standard tools of espionage, but they were also working on a new secret weapon. From the early 1960s until the collapse of communism in 1989, this group spent years designing the perfect man. Their experiments helped create an army of undercover agents who were dispatched to the West. Their task, to seduce lonely West German secretaries and persuade them to hand over government secrets. left behind them a trail of abandoned and betrayed women who had no idea their lovers were actually spies. Those were actually the best years of my life. I was 32, you know. I could have lived, I could have had a life, and I didn't. Known as Romeos, they were experts in the art of pretending to love.
what problems do men have in deceiving women? Not too many. You know, it's, you do it once or twice or three times, and then you are pretty cold about the whole thing. People will think it's just infatuation or sexual attraction. It was all of that, but it was much, much more. It was an eternal longing within me, which I never even knew I had until I actually saw him. From 1977 until 1984, Gabrielle Kleem had an affair with a man who she thought was the love of her life. She was unaware that, in reality, he was an East German spy mining her for West German secrets. Gabrielle passed on more secrets to the East than any other agent in her position. He should have gotten an Oscar. The Oscar would be too small of an award for his uh, portrayal, you know, because he was a fantastic actor. Really, seriously, because uh, it never made me doubt this for a minute. The Romeos were trained to exploit what different women dreamed of in a man. Margaret Herker met her Romeo lover in 1968. For 17 years, she too unknowingly became a key source for the East. I suppose his instructions were to humor me, to adapt to me, to listen, be attentive. And at the time, it was important to have the feeling there was someone there for me. I'd never had that before. I'd never had anyone I could talk to about my problems. The Romeo program which entrapped Margaret and Gabrielle was devised in the early 1960s by the HVA, East Germany's Foreign Intelligence Service, from their headquarters in East Berlin. It was intended to be a key part of their battle with the West. These were the years of the Cold War, when Germany was divided into Communist East and Capitalist West. At its heart was the Berlin Wall, which divided the city in two. East and West were sworn enemies, representing rival ideologies and rival military blocs. It was crucial for the HVA to know what their enemies in the West were thinking. Our main goal was to infiltrate the key power centers of the West, NATO, the Secret Service, the West German government, we thought about how to penetrate these targets, came up with the idea of going for single secretaries who had positions in important places. 
It was the Romeo's job to seduce the Western secretaries and mine them for secrets. The East Germans looked for very specific qualities in the men who were to be sent to the West. The typical Romeo was between 25 and 35, a good-looking, well-educated East German. He had good manners and would be attractive to lonely women. First and foremost, they had to be politically reliable. What was the use of a good-looking man if he couldn't be trusted? We were looking for faith in the party, loyalty, willingness to join the struggle. So we valued political reliability above all else. Strangely enough, these secretaries often fell in love with men who weren't always that good-looking. They had other qualities. For example, they might be a father figure, reliable and serious. More important to these women was the inner values of these men, men who made them think, yes, I could share my life with him. He was the kind of man who, when he walks into a room, you think he's important, he's tall, he appears to be something special. Gerhard Bayer was deemed to have these qualities and was selected to be sent to the West. My particular talent was that I really understood people. I could really engage with them and relate to their problems. This gave women the feeling that they were dealing with a very extraordinary man. To learn their trade, the men selected as Romeos were sent to Belzig, a secret training camp outside Berlin. The syllabus was extensive. Marxist-Leninism, espionage, and most importantly, human nature. Good espionage work always rests on a firm grasp of psychology. I learned a lot about applied psychology and psychological manipulation. I studied human behavior very closely through various different approaches, such as Freudian theories. The Romeos were being sent to the West to be promiscuous, to seduce and deceive. But the East German regime was highly moralistic. There was no mention of sex. Intelligence chiefs like to pretend women would be seduced by higher motives. We were all ideologically very indoctrinated. The political motive for doing intelligence work was always uh, uh, depicted as the strongest, the most reliable. Uh, the use of human weaknesses was in general played down. You didn't want to be seen as working with sleazy characters. It was a contradiction the Romeos also had to deal with. 
We were told that morality was all important. The wife was highly valued in East German society. You should never deceive your wife. But these guys were told that they had to go to the West and do the very opposite. This was a conflict that was always there and was never discussed. Their training over, most Romeos were sent to Bonn, West Germany's capital. It was the home of government ministries and foreign embassies, the key targets for the East Germans. Bonn is a relatively small town, full of ministries and administration. The professionals, so the politicians who worked there, they usually had their family lives, but they had a lot, lots of secretaries. And we knew that Bonn was a lonely place. These women didn't have anything to do in the evening. And for a woman, they had to find a partner. It's nearly impossible. They work long hours. They don't have a lot of spare time. And there are just not enough possible partners. It was not only a difficult place to meet men, it was just no place at all to meet men. The competition was fierce. I mean, if there was one man, word of mouth, you know, before he even arrived, everybody said, oh, there's somebody coming who is not married, because most of them were married. And, and then there were just 20 or more women waiting for this person. Gabrielle Kleem worked as a secretary at the American Embassy in Bonn in the mid-1970s. She had hoped to meet a diplomat to marry, but was finding life in the capital as a single woman difficult. You didn't get invited anywhere, you didn't, you didn't fit in anywhere. You had to have this kind of husband or fiancé who had to have this position. Margaret Herker had also moved to Bonn in search of a new life in the late 1950s. She worked as a secretary to the president of West Germany. I suppose I was looking for independence, to escape from the narrowness of my parents' home, to put some distance between us. I particularly wanted to get away from my mother, who had always kept us very close. So it was against her will that I went away, and I applied for the job in secret. They were both just the sort of vulnerable women working in useful places the HVA was looking for. A woman who had been neglected by life up to then, you know, she was in her early 30s, lonely, normally not too pretty. And when they were too pretty, that was, that was no good. A little bit ugly, not too ugly, because, you know, you had to enable the Romeo to do his job. The Romeos were like vultures circling the skies above Bonn. They found their victims so easily. The Romeos now planted themselves in Bonn's cafes and waited for secretaries to seduce. Margaret Herker and Gabrielle Kleem were about to meet the men who would change the course of their lives. 
One summer afternoon, Gabrielle Kleem, a secretary at the American Embassy in Bonn, was waiting to meet a gentleman friend at a cafe on the banks of the River Rhine. When I was sitting there waiting for this friend, I saw this man coming towards me, and he was so uh, tall and blonde hair and fantastic blue eyes. I thought that a man like this would be actually the answer to all of my inner dreams. And I looked at him, and he came closer and closer, and then he talked to me. And I thought, well, if ever in my life I could have a boyfriend like this. And then uh, he asked me out, and he said that we could go for dinner, and he wanted to spend the evening with me. He ordered a lot of wine and he talked to me and I just remember the feeling I had of uh, totally falling in love with him. The man who approached Gabrielle in the cafe was a Romeo. His bosses in Berlin had intricately planned this first meeting. They'd been watching her for two years to see what type of Romeo would suit her best. The man she was supposed to be meeting that day was also an HVA agent she had met a year earlier. He had intentionally not turned up and sent Romeo agent Frank Dietzel to meet her instead. They studied the psychology of the women exactly. This was very important. For example, she doesn't have a husband. What does she do in her spare time? That was researched in great detail. The Romeo would then consider how to make his first approach. He played out the situation in advance in his head, which story to use. It was all staged. It was pure theater. That day on the Rhine, the HVA had got it just right. It was not only that he was so tremendously good looking, that he was so intelligent. Also, he reminded me of my father, which I never had. And this is something I had always waited for. And every kind of inner dream, which I didn't, wasn't even aware of that I had those dreams, he answered to those dreams and wishes and ideas. These weaknesses were all registered. Loneliness was a big one, like they wanted a father figure. So our man arrives on the scene. He has money, he's good-looking and charming. The secretary becomes obsessed, and she will do everything not to lose him. First encounters between a Romeo and a potential source were not always planned in advance. Romeos were always on the lookout for secretaries to seduce. For Margaret Herker, it was a chance meeting outside a telephone box near her house. He'd seen me from his flat. It overlooked the telephone box I used. 
I'd been waiting to call my parents, but hadn't been able to get through, so I'd been pacing up and down outside. He'd heard my steps and had come down. I'd never seen him in my life before. But after a while, we got chatting, and we ended up going for a walk along the Rhine. That's how it all started. Yeah, so ergab sich das. The Romeo told Margaret his name was Franz Becker, and he claimed to be a student. She revealed she was a secretary to the West German president. When I told him where I work, he was unable to conceal the fact that he was a bit nervous, a little bit excited, and I suppose he thought that's fantastic, and it fitted in very nicely, of course. HVA chiefs in Berlin were immediately alerted that a very important contact had been made, nothing less than a secretary to the president of West Germany. It was now Franz Becker's job to turn that contact into a source. We always used the same method, create trust, build the foundations for a long relationship, manipulate emotions. This was the simplest method, rooted in basic human nature. Margaret and Becker began an intimate sexual relationship. He said he needed me because he was all alone in the world. I'm not sure whether it was pity I felt, but I did have this sense of being somehow responsible for him, a kind of maternal feeling. And when he visited me at my flat, it seemed to me as if he was coming home, that he was coming back to where he belonged. Becker spent three years developing the relationship, with no mention of obtaining any secrets. He tapped into her loneliness and her need for companionship. Well, he was the sort of person you could rely on. That was important. He was a wonderful listener. He really engaged with me. He made me feel as if I was someone special. For most of these women, it was probably a dream come true. They suddenly have a partner who is very attentive, who is very nice, who avoids all mistakes, who wants to keep the relationship stable and going. And here you have almost the ideal partner. For Gabrielle, it was a whirlwind romance. Her Romeo lover, Frank Dietzel, claimed he worked abroad and could only see her every four to six weeks. They met for passionate weekends in hotels along the River Rhine. I would always drive there with a tremendous amount of longing. You're just driving there, you were totally high as if you had taken some drugs or something. And then you would meet him and then you would know that, that this was the only life you would get for all this time and you really had to make the most of it. He just oozed sexuality. And so I was sexually totally dependent on him. I never ever considered even looking at another man. 
They thought that they just could not live without it and this longing which he built up because of the lack of sexuality in the interim periods. And I always had to wait for five weeks and he came up with those idiotic mathematical equations telling me that if he would go to bed with me six or seven times during this one weekend, <laughs> that this would equate, no, this is not funny, this would equate to, to whatever during the weekend and this would then come up if you add this all up to this normal relationship. Frank Dietzel sent the intimate details of his relationship with Gabrielle back to Berlin. They were poured over by intelligence chiefs at HVA headquarters, who could then plan the next stage in the relationship. Sex played a role, of course. It was reported whether sex was important to the woman. This kind of information was included in a dossier, and the Romeo used it to plan his behavior. The Romeo would report about sex verbally to his controller, but that side of things was left pretty much to the Romeo to manage as he saw fit. But it was discussed when it was relevant to the operation. Gabrielle may have fallen passionately in love, but for all Romeos, sex served a very specific purpose. We had an expression for this. We called it the post-coital readiness to disclose information. What this meant was that women you were sleeping with were prepared to reveal an enormous amount after sex. This will never happen during the day when they're at their most rational, which is why you have to work on them in the evening, when they're at their most emotional. With military precision, the HVA chiefs in Berlin had made Margaret and Gabrielle fall in love with their Romeos. They were now considered ready to start delivering secrets to the East. Three years into his relationship with Margaret Herker, Romeo agent Franz Becker felt she was ready to pass on information from the president's palace. We just chatted about this and that, about certain people from my office. He just seemed to have a very general interest in it all. Her entanglement was engineered very carefully, very slowly. What she delivered in the early days or reported on didn't go beyond what any of us might tell a good friend or partner in casual conversation. But that was just the beginning. After two years of receiving this verbal information, he felt ready to ask her for more. Secret documents from the palace. Margaret had now been with him for five years and trusted him when he told her who he worked for. He never talked about secret services, of course. There was what he called the firm, which had its headquarters in Zurich. 
All I knew was that it was a right-wing organization. When he asked me to give him documents, I didn't say, of course, I'll do it. I just said, I'll see what I can do if I happen to find anything. I agreed, so he had something to offer the firm. Margaret began to smuggle top-secret government documents from the president's palace. What I took were just little notes which I could slip very easily into my handbag, or a thin carbon copy which I could fold up and hide in one of its compartments. I had a good relationship with my bosses, but this was a breach of trust no one would have thought I was capable of. I ask myself how France managed to bring me to this point. Even now I ask myself this. He told me I was helping him. I don't know, I just can't explain it. West Germany was at the front line of the Cold War. Thousands of British and American troops were stationed there in NATO bases. All top secret reports on negotiations within NATO were sent to the West German president. This was the information the East Germans wanted. Margaret Herker gave it to them. In der seinerzeitigen Situation, because of the situation at that time, the heightened tension between East and West, this information was extremely sensitive. It was rather like Big Brother looking over your shoulder at all negotiations between the alliance partners. Gabrielle Kleem's job at the US Embassy in Bonn gave her access to American military secrets. Her Romeo also developed a relationship to the point where she would trust him when he asked her for secret documents. He came up with a story. He said that he was working in Saudi Arabia and in African countries, and that his home office was in Munich, and that he worked for a company which was uh, collecting information on different levels, also economic levels, and to uh, some kind of like a so-called think tank or database, which would be used to support uh, uh, peace, uh, to nurture peace in the world. Gabrielle was obsessed with detail and willing to believe anything. This sexual attraction, which nobody ever had, I had this. And this, uh, I think this made me close my eyes to everything, and he just knew this. Having smuggled the documents out of the embassy, she would photograph them at home and give him the films whenever she saw him. I would have the films in the pocket of my coat, and he would hug me and, and put his hand in the pocket of my coat and take the films without ever saying anything. And then always looking at me like this father image and say, oh, yes, you did very well, child. Gabrielle's position at the U.S. Embassy made her recruitment by the HVA a danger to the West. 
She was known to East German intelligence by her code name, Gerhard. The source Gerhardt was one of the most important East Germans ever had in terms of the quantity of information and the extent of information that was being passed to East Berlin. She worked in the American embassy, so had access to very important information. She worked in the very office where armed supplies and military maneuvers were coordinated between the West Germans and the Americans. Margaret was now regularly delivering secret documents to Becker, but their relationship changed. She was hooked on him, so he didn't need to spend as much time with her and insisted their affair be kept a secret. I never really had an address. I never really had a telephone number where I could call him. Right up to the end, I didn't. He always had some excuse or other why this had to be the case, and this was an impossible situation. Becker gave regular reports to his bosses back in the East on the state of the relationship. Teams of psychologists analyzed the reports and worked out how the relationship should progress. They wanted to keep their source happy at all costs. The task really was to keep things on the boil, re-inject vigor into the relationship. And we did this with interesting conversation, love, an expensive holiday. Some of these women couldn't have afforded it on their own, but the HVA footed the bill, and it worked. It bought time. The relationship could last another year. If the relationship showed signs of cooling, it was always warmed up again to motivate the woman. And this was always done according to a set plan. Becker took these photos of Margaret on their holidays together. But he refused to be photographed. Pictures of the back of his head are all that Margaret has of their time together. Even then, she claims she noticed something strange about him. There was always something at the back of it all which I couldn't really put my finger on. He seemed divided, as if he had a job to do, and I kind of sensed this. Margaret thought of leaving him, but Becker had been well-trained in using a woman's weaknesses to keep her. Whenever I tried to end the relationship, he'd come along and talk about all the good things, the good times. He'd always say that we needed one another, that we knew one another inside out, that we understood each other. And that's how he kept me. I don't want to talk badly about women, but women, they accept quite a bit if they are really in need for, for some relationships. Women are forgiving in general if you don't overdo it. And you can play with the woman as long as you want. At the end, you open your shirt and shoot me. Oh, she will say, no, it's not that bad. It's true. Long stretches apart, secrecy. For Gabrielle, too, life as the lover of a Romeo was never easy. 
I never really lived unless it was through him. So, so this was a horrible problem in all those years, and it, it, got, it got increasingly worse. You would think, oh, well, she didn't see him for five weeks, and she had a life in those interval periods, but I didn't. I didn't have any life. I didn't go out. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything what I wanted. Berlin couldn't risk Gabrielle becoming too unhappy. They couldn't afford to lose such a valuable source. She had to believe there was a future with her Romeo. Dietzel kept her by promising what she most wanted in the world. We were in Düsseldorf and walking along, and he lifted me up in front of a window so we could both look into our reflections, and he said, oh, we were such a beautiful couple, and we will get married next spring. Of course, I was ecstatic. I was dancing with joy. I thought now I would finally have a life. Six months later, Dietzel summoned Gabrielle to a cafe in Brühl. I, because I thought when we were going to get married, I, I was ecstatic with joy, and I thought that he would tell me, you know, something about the wedding plans. But Romeos were not supposed to marry their source. They lived in West Germany under a false identity, and marriage would involve too many checks. So he made his excuses the wedding was off. I thought that maybe this relationship would now break up, you know, because it was, he had hurt me really not only so much, but too much. But the relationship did not break up. The trips to the Rhine and Gabrielle's spying continued year after year. Secret details of Western missile systems and NATO exercises were all passed on. It was the only way Gabrielle could keep Dietzel. He always played this fantastic role. He thought, of course, if you don't bring any more of those documents, my love for you will certainly not die, but I don't know how I could keep on seeing you. Of course, if he would have said, if you don't give me any more documents, bloody well, I don't come to see you anymore, then even I would have walked but he always said yes I will do my the most I can but I don't know how I can do it and then always calculating and everything you know and that's how he got me to do it that's, um... the men in Berlin had shaped two excellent sources but their spying for the East was about to come to an end the West German Secret Service the BND was now on the trail of both women. By 1985, Margaret Herker had been with her Romeo lover, Franz Becker, for 17 years. For 14 of those, she had been passing on secrets from the President's palace. But Becker had been identified as an agent by the West German Secret Service, the BND. While under surveillance, they noticed he saw a lot of Margaret. And then, of course, the alarm bell started ringing. Who is this? Is it his mother? Is it his girlfriend? Is it his sister? And then we discovered that Miss Herker worked in the president's office. And then, of course, the alarm bells really began to ring. Aha. 
Margaret's flat in Bonn was now put under surveillance. After several months, the West Germans had the evidence they needed. It was time to tell her boss, President von Weizsäcker. Uh, he was very skeptical. Suddenly, the head of counterintelligence comes along and says, Mr. President, one of your closest aides is an agent. And, of course, you have to have some very strong evidence to back that up. And I remember that President von Weizsäcker was very dubious. My impression at the time was that he was more willing to believe Miss Hörke than he was to believe me. But the evidence was overwhelming. Margaret was picked up from her flat and charged with espionage. She insisted her lover had worked for a peace institute in Switzerland. I really believed even then that it was an organization in Switzerland. But the police didn't believe anything I said. In the whole world, there is no Swiss organization, whatever its political color, which would have been interested in the type of material that Miss Herker was handing over. And her claim that she didn't know what she was involved in, well, this is something all these people do to preserve their own self-esteem. She was not naive. She might have been clinging to the idea of doing something good or working for peace. But the fact that she clung to something like this is a sign that deep down she knew exactly what she was involved in. For the first time, Margaret discovered that the man she had loved for 17 years had secretly been spying for the East. I only discovered later that he was already married when he was sent over here. That was a terrible revelation for me. I mean, the whole thing was bad enough, but the fact that he'd always gone on about how he was all alone in the world, without family, he could have spared me that, I think. While Franz Becker escaped to the east, Margaret was sentenced to eight years in prison for espionage, of which she served four. Well, of course, it was absolutely awful. I needed all the strength I had just to survive it. And if you ask me how I survived it, well, I really don't know. For Gabrielle Kleem, the end came in 1991. The Cold War and her affair with her Romeo lover, Frank Dietzel, were now over. The HVA had been disbanded. Documents uncovered from their files revealed that Gabrielle had been passing secrets to the East from 1977 until the collapse of communism in 1989. She had handed over 1,500 documents, more than any other source in her position. But at her trial, all she could think of was Dietzel. 
they were constantly talking about espionage and I didn't care shit about that. I always said, but did you know him? What was he like? And did he love me? I, I'm sorry, I always wanted to know, did he, did he have some feelings for me? Or was it all just a lie? I really wanted to know. If something like that happens to you, you tend to question yourself what is true and what is not true and what part is real and what part is imagined and what part is a story and what part is a fiction. And you go absolutely insane because you just feel like you are disintegrating bit by bit by bit by bit. Memories were false. Everything you lived for was kind of taken away. <laughs> you have practically no identity. We were people, and they destroyed us on, in every level. As the Cold War was now over, Gabrielle received a two-year suspended sentence. The men who ran the operation from Berlin were not even put on trial, as they were deemed to have been doing their job. I think it's so devastating that some shit, stupid assholes, I'm sorry, whom I don't know from a hole in the ground, sit in some stupid shit office in East Germany, picking people, women, out, you know, like, like, like uh, animals for testing and saying, okay, we are going to destroy her life. Today, Margaret Herker lives alone in her parents' old house. After her release from prison, she had nowhere to go but the place she had left 30 years earlier in search of an exciting life in Bonn. She has not seen Franz Becker since her arrest. He is now seriously ill. Ich denke, er muss jetzt mit seiner, mit sich zurechtkommen. It seems to me that he now has to live with himself, and that must be hard enough. But I think I've worked through a lot of this. This is his issue now. I don't have any feelings of hatred. The relationship was a huge part of my life. It did have a purpose and a meaning for me. So in that respect, these were not wasted years. Gabrielle Kleem now lives alone in Holland with her 13 dogs. There is little sympathy for the plight of Gabrielle and Margaret from the men who benefited from the secrets they gave. We never abused women. We saw it as a legitimate method, a method which was justified by the very real threat posed by the Cold War. If we're talking about the brutality of secret services, if you show me this broken heart, well, then I can show you much, much worse. Look back through history, and a few broken hearts look like nothing. 
Whichever way you look at it, espionage is a dirty business, but it's necessary. There is always a point where you want to know more from someone than he's prepared to reveal, and to get at this information, you use all the means at your disposal. And because the human being is always the weakest link in the chain, you use this weakness to your own advantage. C'est la vie. C'est la vie. If it hadn't been the Romeo, for this poor woman, that would be... Ten years of a happy life may be missing. I don't think there was a too big human cost to it, because it it goes into the in the general mixture of human fate and and human happiness and unhappiness. Some of them are probably very happy with their Romeos. Gabrielle's Romeo lover died several years ago. He may have deceived her to keep her spying, but to this day, she has not let go. If he would walk into my life, like I remember him, I'm terribly afraid that I would fall in love with him again. And because of I'm now, um, alone again, totally alone. A very big part of me would say, yes, that I loved you and you filled a void in me which nobody ever could or would or will again. And why don't we just move on from there, <laughs> oh God, and live for once together. years ago, while I was working at the United States Department of Homeland Security, my principal job was to travel around the globe to coordinate anti-terrorism activities with other nations. One of the places that I visited most frequently was Germany. Germany is a critical partner in our counterterrorism efforts. At least in part, this is because it is a significant transit point for traffic between the Middle East and other parts of the world. But it's also because Germany is one of the most able partners America has in the European Union. The Germans, with 80 million people and a vigorous economy, are capable of significant assistance when they are inclined to provide it. But that was the confounding thing. It was always difficult for me to understand the Germans. To my mind, they seemed to be the Europeans who were most like Americans, good-natured, effective, willing to work hard, they sort of reminded me of Texans. At the same time, they were unwilling or unable to use those capabilities in the way we wanted to fight the terrorist activities that we were seeing. In particular, 
their attitude was very different than Americans' views on how to conduct surveillance and about when they would be willing to share information they collected with anyone outside of the German government. There were clearly positive benefits to enhanced information sharing between the United States and Germany, but the Germans were simply unwilling to change their practices. They explained this to me as a legacy of their own history. If I heard it once, I heard it a dozen times that Germany had been ruled by not one, but two authoritarian regimes in the previous 50 years, Adolf Hitler and then communist East Germany. In those regimes, the Germans had seen the dangers of pervasive government surveillance, and they were very reluctant to go back down that road again. Now, it's one thing for them to express that fear of the surveillance state, which is visceral and embedded. I could grasp why history would shape their sensitivity, but I didn't really understand until I saw the movie The Lives of Others. It's a beautiful film that won an Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Movie. It tells a story about Stasi surveillance in East Germany before the fall of the Berlin Wall. If you've never seen it, I recommend you do so. It brings home why surveillance really matters. Broadly, the movie is about a German intelligence officer who is ordered to conduct surveillance on a well-to-do German couple. The man is a playwright and the woman is an actress. This order is handed down to the intelligence officer, not because the couple is suspected of disloyalty or espionage, but rather because a member of the Communist Party is interested in the girlfriend. The Communist official wants the intelligence agency to discover something bad about the boyfriend so he can have his way with the girlfriend. And the story is about how the act of surveillance affects not only the boyfriend and girlfriend who became aware of it, but also about how being a watcher changes the intelligence agent himself and transforms him. It's an amazingly powerful revelation. Just as importantly, the movie preserves for us an insight into what the Stasi culture was like. And that's the subject of today's lecture. I want to first talk about the Nazi precursor to the Stasi system. Then we'll describe how Stasi surveillance functioned. We will also close with a short consideration of why, if at all, the Stasi history is relevant to contemporary debates. Prior to the Cold War standoff between Eastern and Western Europe, there was, of course, significant state surveillance in Germany during the Nazi regime leading up to and throughout World War II. The author, Eric Larson, describes the problem in his book in the Garden of Beasts. Set during the early years of the Nazi government, it's about the life and times of America's ambassador to Germany, William Dodd, and the Dodd family who lived in Germany during the early and mid-1930s. The book is based on Dodd's own diary, that of his flighty daughter Martha, and the abundant wealth of diplomatic cables that went back and forth from the Berlin Embassy to the Department of State headquarters in Washington. As Larson tells the story, Dodd and his family were acutely aware of widespread Nazi surveillance. Prevailing wisdom held that Nazi agents hid their microphones and telephones to pick up conversations. To overcome any snooping, Larson says, the ambassador filled a cardboard box with cotton 
and used it to cover his own telephone whenever a conversation in the library shifted to confidential territory. Larson also relates the anecdote about the man who telephones a friend and in the course of the conversation happens to ask, how's Uncle Adolf? Somehow, afterward, the secret police appear at his door and insist that he prove he really has an Uncle Adolf. And the question was not a coded reference to Hitler. Larson says Germans began looking over their shoulders at every encounter and came to practice what became known as the, the German glance a quick look in all directions when encountering a friend or acquaintance on the street. Quote, in the most casual of circumstances, he writes, you spoke carefully and paid attention to those around you and in a way you never had before. Nazi surveillance was undergirded by one of the most sophisticated data collection and analysis systems of the time. It was possibly the first systematic use of data balance by a nation state. The system was developed and operated by a company known as DEHOMOG, the corporate acronym for, and here, let me apologize to any listeners who are native German speakers for my horrible pronunciation, Deutsche Hollerith Maschinen Gesellschaft, MBH. In English, that means German Hollerith Machine, LLC. DEHOMOG was a subsidiary of the U.S. technology company, IBM. It had a monopoly on data analysis for the German government in the years leading up to and during World War II. The Hollerith in the name was Hermann Hollerith, a German-American inventor who developed a method for instructing the analog data accumulators of that era through the use of punch cards. If, by the way, you're too young to have seen a punch card, they were pieces of stiff paper in which holes were punched in predetermined positions. The holes could either control the machine, telling it what function to perform, or they could contain data that would be used in performance of that function. Hollerith first invented and used his data punch cards to capture the data for the 1890 U.S. Census. He founded the Tabulating Machine Company in 1896, which in 1924 became known as the International Business Machines Corporation, or IBM. During the Nazi era, IBM punch cards were used to compile data on Jewish citizens in Germany as part of the German census. According to Edwin Black, writing in the New Yorker magazine, quote, one series of punch cards were designed to record religion, national origin, and mother tongue. But by creating special columns and rows for Jew, Polish language, Polish nationality, the fur trade as an occupation, and then Berlin, Nazis could quickly cross-tabulate at the rate of 25,000 cards per hour exactly how many Berlin furriers were Jews of Polish extraction. Railroad cars could take two weeks to locate and route and now could be swiftly dispatched in just 48 hours 
by means of a vast network of punch card machines. Indeed, IBM services coursed through the entire German infrastructure in Europe. Close quote. IBM disputes some of what Black has written, particularly with regard to their motivations, but it does not dispute the fundamental point that its technology was a component of Nazi surveillance capability. Against this background, it's easy to see how surveillance came to pervade communist East Germany after World War II, and why contemporary Germans so highly value privacy and limits on state surveillance. The internal security force for the German Democratic Republic, also known as East Germany, was known as the Ministerium for Staatssicherheit, MFS, commonly known as the Stasi. Many commentators describe it as the most repressive and oppressive surveillance system ever operated. One of my favorite stories about Stasi surveillance is told by the German Chancellor, Angela Merkel. Early in her career, shortly after interviewing for a job as a scientific assistant at an East German university, apparently she was approached by the Stasi and asked to be an informant for the state. She says she turned down the offer and got off by explaining that she was a blabbermouth who couldn't keep her mouth shut. It's a wonderful story, especially since she became known as a very closed-mouthed leader of one of Europe's most important countries. Now, here are some, though by no means all, of the activities that, Sta that the Stasi undertook during its heyday. It had, of course, a system for monitoring telephone conversations. It also had what is known as a mail cover system that opened up letters and parcels coming in from overseas, as well as mail to certain targeted people. It tracked all of the few foreigners who were allowed into East Germany. And perhaps my favorite, was a division whose job it was to detect whether any citizens had illegal Western foods in their garbage. The Stasi even took odor samples to enrich their files on suspects. If you go to the Stasi Museum today, you can see them. Rows of jars with yellow cloth inside. The Stasi systematically and secretly collected the smells of suspected dissidents for use as a comparison. For example, dogs might compare the smell on a flyer for a protest meeting against the smell from a suspected organizer. When in 2007, the current German government did something similar, collecting scent samples from protesters at a G8 meeting, the reaction was, as you would expect, quick and decidedly negative. Here's one more example of how Stasi surveillance worked. The German news magazine Der Spiegel once reported how a nosy Hausfrau, who had been asked by her neighbors to water their plants while they were away, went snooping through their cupboards and found the makings for a delicious, and by standards of austere East Germany, lavish West German pudding. Once the nosy neighbor informed state security, that was enough for the family breadwinner to be fired from his job and for the entire household to plunge into destitution. The Stasi's most insidious characteristic was not its army of civil servants. Rather, what distinguished Stasi from other surveillance systems was the massive number of its informants, the company of whom Chan Chancellor Merkel wisely chose not to join.
In Germany, they were known as informal collaborators, or inoffizielle Mitarbeiter, IMs. Though estimates vary, we can say with confidence that in 1989, on the cusp of the fall of the Berlin Wall, the East German government employed more than 170,000 of these IMs. When you consider that the entire population of the country was only 16 million at the time, this means that more than 1% of the population served as informants. And if you exclude the very young and the very old from the population, it is likely that as many as 2% of the population of adult age were IMs. Perhaps worst of all, some 10,000 of these informants were under the age of 18. They were children, many of them perhaps spying on their parents. I've seen one estimate in John O. Kohler's book, Stasi, The Untold Story of the East German Secret Police, suggesting that if occasional informants are included, as many as two million East Germans were watching their fellow citizens. If true, such a number surely validates Nazi hunter Simon Wiesenthal's belief that the Stasi were even more oppressive than the Nazi Gestapo. Using Wiesenthal's figures for the Nazi Gestapo during World War II, there was one officer for every 2,000 German citizens. By comparison, according to John Kohler, the ratio for the Stasi was one secret policeman for 166 East Germans. When the regular informants are added, there would have been at least one spy watching every 66 citizens. And when one adds in the estimated number of part-time snoops, like the plant-watering neighbor, the result is nothing short of monstrous. One informer for 6.5 citizens. Again, there is some historical dispute. Some German researchers think Kohler's numbers are exaggerated. But even if we don't count the informants, the Stasi workforce was larger on a per capita basis than the Gestapo or the Soviet KGB. Sometimes, the only thing more difficult than running a business is finding the right words to market it. Lucky for you, our new AI content generator doesn't sweat words. Just tell it what you want to create, enter a few details, click generate content, and in just seconds it'll give you options to build from or leave as is. Writer's block? Not anymore. With artificial intelligence doing the wordsmithing for you, you can craft the perfect message in the blink of an AI. Recordings just got better. Hey, it's Dana from StreamYard. I'm so excited to announce that local recordings are now available on StreamYard. Have you ever done a recording where your guests just had terrible internet issues? They were blurry, they were freezing. You could almost- Gestapo or the Soviet KGB. One of the most insidious forms of Stasi surveillance went by the name Zerzetzung. Zerzetzung was, broadly speaking, a form of psychological harassment that was designed to wreak havoc on an individual without any need to arrest or torture the target. As the German historian Hubertus Knabe puts it, 
The word is difficult to translate because it means originally biodegradation. But actually, it's quite accurate a description. The goal was to destroy secretly the self-confidence of people, for example, by damaging their reputation, by organizing failures in their work, and by destroying their personal relationships. Considering this, East Germany was a very modern dictatorship. The Stasi didn't try to arrest every dissident. It preferred to paralyze them, and it could do so because it had access to so much personal information and to so many institutions. What would some of these techniques be? How did they work? Well, as Knabi mentions, some of them were semi-overt. The Stasi would arrange, for example, for your work to go poorly. Though the causes might not be known to the subject of the attack, the effects were pretty evident. Other techniques were more insidious. It would sometimes, for example, spread rumors about a target amongst his or her friends and colleagues. Stories of alcoholism, parental neglect, or the like. Sometimes, the Stasi would play mischievous mind games with the target. They might, for example, enter his or her house and move the furniture around. Or they might change the time on an alarm clock or replace the tea bags with different types of tea. Talk about messing with your mind. Other tactics were similarly abusive. Reports exist of the Stasi arranging for a target to get deliberately incorrect medical treatment or to receive doctored photographs purporting to show him in a compromising position. One report, perhaps apocryphal, has the Stasi sending a vibrator to the wife of the target of one of their operations, evidently as a way of sending a message about his lovemaking. Why use Sertetsum? For any number of reasons. First and foremost, there is the interorum effect of the technique. The victim doesn't know what's happening. The mystery makes the adverse situation all the more difficult, and everybody around the target can watch as he or she crumbles under the relentless pressure of state harassment. Think of the psychological effects such a pervasive system must have had on the population. Think of the times that a German citizen was convinced that the person on the train next to him was a government agent and yet that fear was purely in his head. It speaks to the paranoia that builds up once you start to think that some enormous, invisible, sinister organization is out to get you. Against our real adversaries, that sense of dread is very effective. We want Al-Qaeda to think we know more about them than we actually do. And in an authoritarian state like East Germany, it is a wonderfully effective means of control. But in a democracy like America, it is a serious problem when your own citizens develop that same sense of dread, and it's nearly impossible to erase once started. Second, Zertsetzung is efficient. Holding someone in a cell is expensive. Harassing them every third day is much less so. And it is effective. Finally, an added advantage of psychological operations was their deniability. The Stasi could plausibly say it had no idea about what was happening, and thereby allow the East German regime to maintain a false facade of international respectability.
After the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Stasi tried to destroy many of its files. They were thwarted only when East German citizens stormed the offices and stopped them from expunging the records. Perhaps only 10% of the records were destroyed. Nobody knows for sure. How large is the file system that remains? According to the German magazine Der Spiegel, the surviving files occupy more than 100 kilometers, roughly 62 miles of shelf space. In addition, there are 16,000 sacks of shredded documents that some are trying to reconstruct. That's a huge record of human conduct, from the trivial, like the illegally hoarded West German pudding, to the significant. On the other hand, not everybody was in the system. Since the fall of the wall, nearly three million Germans have asked to see their files. And somewhat surprisingly, roughly 50% of those who made the request come away disappointed. They don't have a file on record with the Stasi. I suppose that's fundamentally a good thing, but we can also imagine a certain frisson of disappointment. Was I not important enough to be subject to surveillance? The Stasi system was not the only one of its kind. Chinese surveillance, what little is known of it, looks very much like that employed by the Stasi. Today, for example, it is standard practice for American businesses to warn their traveling employees not to take along their personal electronics and to destroy the phones they do take along before returning to the United States. Consider as well the story of Hao Jian, an activist who is part of the Tiananmen Square protests. One of his friends who gave a speech in the United States says that Hao, who is not allowed to leave China, has his phone tapped by the police, that they read all of his email, and they follow him physically all the time. As one police officer told Hao, to me, your life is totally transparent. Imagine what it must be like to be forced to lead a transparent life, one with no privacy at all. Indeed, the intelligence hierarchy in China is sufficiently obscure that almost nobody knows which agency is in charge of domestic surveillance, nor how many citizens are under scrutiny. Or take a walk in the shoes of Eric Talmadge, a reporter for the Associated Press in Tokyo, who covers North Korea. In recent years, he was the only Western reporter given regular access to North Korea. Talmadge told the Washington Post that when he is in Pyongyang, he is shadowed constantly by a minder, that is someone who accompanies him every time he leaves his office or hotel. The minder seems to be more concerned with making sure that regular North Koreans don't talk to Talmadge than he is in watching Talmadge himself. When he goes out, Talmadge is not allowed to change his route or stop to interview people at random. And of course, Everything he does electronically is monitored, his calls, his emails, and his internet use. Talmadge says, I just assume that everything I say to anyone is on the record, always. At this point, now that we understand the Stasi system, it is fair to ask why, in a course on the modern surveillance state, we begin our discussion with consideration of the Stasi. After all, They've been gone more than 25 years. What does distant history have to do with today? I could defend the choice on any number of grounds. 
25 years is not so long ago. American policy still revolves in part around events that occurred in the 1960s and 70s. So one answer is that a page of history is worth a volume of logic. Or as the writer and philosopher George Santayana once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. On that basis alone, the history of one of the most intrusive surveillance systems ever is worth studying. But the better answer, I think, is that for good or ill, the Stasi system has become a sort of benchmark in political discourse for the description of systems of surveillance, and one that is deployed with some regularity. For example, Marcus Ferber, a member of Chancellor Angela Merkel's Christian Democratic Union, once assailed the United States for American-style Stasi methods. The Nation magazine has also bemoaned the United States as a modern-day Stasi state. And not long ago, in lights on the walls of the U.S. Embassy in Berlin, a German artist projected the message, United Stasi of America. So too, when President Obama defended previously undisclosed methods of the National Security Agency activity, he cited East Germany as a cautionary tale of what could happen when vast unchecked surveillance turned citizens into informers and persecuted people for what they said in the privacy of their own homes. Of course, he was using the Stasi as a counterpoint, answering accusations against the NSA by saying it was not a similarly vast, unchecked effort to collect data. Let's end this lecture by returning to one small factual detail from the movie The Lives of Others. It is a detail that remained true to life in East Germany up until the fall of the Berlin Wall in November 1989. It was that month that East German officials opened the floodgates to allow citizens free passage to the West, it was the summer of 1990 when the wall began to be dismantled. In the film, one of the heroes, the playwright named Draymond, has become disillusioned with the communist state. He decides that he's going to write an expose about suicide in the East and have it smuggled to the West for publication. But Draymond has a problem. He needs a new typewriter. You see, it turns out that every typewriter in East Germany was registered with the government. Literally every typewriter was identified and associated with an owner, and the government had a sample of how the typeface of that particular writing machine looked. You can see the problem for Draymond. He's worried that were he to use his regular typewriter to write the story, and then somehow a copy of his manuscript came back to East Germany, it would be easy for the Stasi to pinpoint him as the author. So he solves the problem by having a friend smuggle in a new unregistered typewriter to him from the West. And that's the typewriter he uses to write his explosive story. Later, the discovery of this secret typewriter forms a critical plot point of the movie, one that I won't spoil for you by telling. The innovativeness and poignancy of Draymond's resistance shouldn't obscure the broader point about the pervasiveness of Stasi surveillance. Among the many examples I've offered about surveillance in the former East German Stasi state, some comical, some quite chilling, for me, Draymond's typewriter is the zenith, or more appropriately, the nadir of the surveillance state. 
we can ask ourselves whether in its abusiveness it has ever since been eaten.